Hi, and welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive Unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteredonline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. Intermittent fasting, carnivore diet, vegan diet, people get so wedded to a particular dietary approach or a nutritional strategy. But from, from reading your work, fed versus fasted cardio in women is not the straightforward conversation that it should be for men where there doesn't really seem to be any difference. Have I understood what you, you said correctly? Is there a big difference in women between exercising in a fasted state and a fed state? Absolutely. So it comes down to the hypothalamus. And in the hypothalamus, there's an area of neurons called kisspeptin or the kiss one gene. And this is a really essential group of neurons that is responsible for puberty development. So we're looking at endocrine system, thyroid, muscle development, that kind of stuff. In, the, in women, there are two areas of kisspeptin neurons, but in men, there's one. So we have two areas in the women because women have a menstrual cycle and a, a very robust endocrine system that changes over the course of a month. Men, they don't have that. So when we're looking at thresholds for calorie intake, we're looking at nutrient density, the thresholds are completely different. So we see that in women, when they start to drop their calories below 35 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass, the kisspeptin neurons are downregulated. So we start to see a downregulation of thyroid within even four days of this. We see a, a reduction in luteinizing hormone pulse, which then feeds forward into menstrual cycle dysfunction. For men, that threshold, when we start to see a little bit of endocrine dysfunction, like a little bit of lower testosterone, is 15 calories per kilogram fat-free mass. So there's a massive threshold difference. So when we start talking about fasted training, one, women are already maximally capable of burning fatty acids from sex differences within the muscle itself. And we also have estrogen exposure that also encourages fatty acid utilization. So the idea of fasted training and the whole metabolic efficiency thing doesn't hold water for women. And when we start looking at women going into fasted training, especially in the morning when there's a, a higher elevation of cortisol already, and then they start trying to do either lifting or heavy cardio intensity, you're not going to be able to hit those intensities without overstressing the body. And then the body stays in this catabolic state. And when you're in that catabolic state, the brain perceives it as, oh, you know, there's not enough calories. I have to start really conserving. It doesn't mean a lot of food when I talk about a fed state. People think, oh, I have to get up and have a full breakfast before I go training. It's like, no, 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 no. If you're going to do strength training, then it's 15 grams of protein. So around, what, 100 calories, 80 to 100 calories of protein. And that's enough to get amino acids circulating to signal to the hypothalamus that there's some nutrition coming in. And then post-strength training, have your breakfast, right? Have a good dose of protein and some carbohydrate and have your breakfast. If you're going to do a lot of cardiovascular type work, then you want to have 30 grams of carbohydrate with that 15 grams of protein. Not a lot. So... There's 120 and 80, so maybe 200 calories max that you have before. 
I often opt for a protein fortified cold brew with some sweetened oat or almond milk because then I'm getting some carbohydrates some protein, a little caffeine, boom, good to go. Then I have breakfast afterwards. So getting people to understand it doesn't mean a full meal, but it does mean some nutrition coming in. So the hypothalamus is understanding that I'm not going to be doing this kind of stress without any kind of fuel. Then it also feeds forward to better um, EPOC or excessive post-oxygen consumption. So your metabolism stays elevated, better uh, signaling for adaptations. And it's also a way of, of um, reducing catabolism in the body, especially if you're having some food before and after, then you're shutting the breakdown state and you get better adaptive responses, especially in women. For men, it's not the same because of that threshold in the hypothalamus. And we know from like a biological perspective that in times of low calorie, men would lean up and get fitter and stronger to go fight the beast to try to bring calories home. But women would get fatter and their menstrual cycle would stop because they needed to store calories and they couldn't reproduce because why would you reproduce when there aren't enough calories around to feed who was already there? So is there ever any is there ever a case for for women to fair to train sorry in in a faster state i'm thinking of those personal trainers who might have had success with male clients uh training them faster maybe they've got a woman whose primary uh training objective is to lose fat so they would instantly go for for a faster training approach there is there is there a difference if someone is trying to lose excessive amounts of weight or is the rule a blanket one you should always be be training in a fed state if you're female it's kind of blanket. You should always be training in a fed state. So if you're trying to lose excess body fat, there are two things to really focus on. We know that increasing protein intake without exercise can recomp the body over the course of three months. And this is hitting that, you know, one gram per pound or two grams per kilo. And if you're doing that regular doses, then it does facilitate body fat loss. The other thing is just a slight calorie reduction in the afternoon away from training or even, you know, a smaller dinner and no snack after dinner really goes far because you're working with your chronobiology and you're working by giving your body the fuel that it needs in the day to work with your, your pretty much your circadian rhythm and how your body responds to food. And then it's also giving your body the opportunity to really utilize body fat, why it, you're sleeping and why you're resting in the evening so that your body's still able to recover, but it has fuel from body fat. So the way that I get people to understand is you want to fuel for the stress at hand. For women, it's really essential. You're not a diesel engine. You can't ride on fumes. You actually need really good fuel to make change, to make adaptive responses work for you for men it's a different story because their engine is completely different so when we start getting that then we see it happen uh, i with relative uh, energy deficiency in sport is is this what what it's all about fundamentally it's such a, an interesting area and being looked at i think probably specifically at men but the implications are completely different for women then because of how our bodies run is this something that again that you're having to Honestly, try and educate people that women respond very, very differently to low calories than men do. Yes, yes. And then in the sporting world, getting people to understand that men also suffer from low energy availability, but the symptomology is different than women. So far, when we see all the symptomology of red ass, it's based on female data, which is different, right? 
So we're seeing like cardiovascular perturbations, gut perturbations, um, loss of menstrual cycle, mood disorders. Those happen in men, but they um, are apparent in a different fashion. So the mood disorders are different. Men become more aggressive, women become depressed. Cardiovascular aspects, women's um, low density lipoproteins go up, men's triglycerides go up. So we're starting to see some sex differences. But if you were to take the idea of men and low energy availability and look at their blood work compared to what the norm is for women, they're completely different. So really trying to educate that these are the things that happen to women in low energy availability. These are the things that happen to men in low energy availability. And we have to address them differently to get them out. When it comes to female training, there's a number of common misconceptions that just won't seem to go away. I think probably the primary one being that strength training or resistance training makes you bulky. I think so many women want to take greater control of their health and fitness, but are still encountering some of these stumbling blocks. Is the biggest obstacle in your experience, Dr. Simpson, still that misconception around resistance training or are there other kind of common fallacies that are now taking its place that are stopping women from achieving their potential? I think there's a lot of things, but if we look specifically at resistance training, um, like historically, it's been more of aggression and, and strength and power and speed for men. So if you go into a gym right now, you see that it's very gendered because if you walk in, you're like, hey, I want a gym membership. As a woman, they'll ask you, well, how much weight do you want to lose? And oh, by the way, there's the cardio equipment. And these these are our spin class and our yoga classes. And if you're a guy and you walk in, you're like, I want a gym membership. They're like, okay, great. How, you know, what's your goal? What do you want to lift? Here's the strength components. Here's the, the racks, that kind of stuff. We have great PTs, whatever. So it's automatically gendered. So that's one of the big barriers when women go and like, oh, I want to take care of my health, but I've been ushered to this boot camp class. Oh, there's resistance training now, right? But when we're looking at what it means to actually get into the gym and lift heavy and to do power-based training, there's still that that misnomer that is very masculine and it's going to masculinize a woman, but it's not. And we see this, it's like, we know that women do better with power-based training just from a central nervous system and a nerve pattern and a lot of the muscle fibers that are involved. Um, but it doesn't mean that they get bulky, they just get strong because we need that that heavier load and the shorter recovery time between those heavy loads to actually instigate that central nervous system response to get strong. To get bulky, and we see people like the CrossFit Games athletes, like Annie um, Tor's daughter, she's really strong, but she works really, really hard at getting that bulk as a function of what she does as an athlete. And then if we see images of like the physique competitions and the Olympic uh, Miss Olympia, and we have those kinds of ideas about being in the gym, it does perpetuate this myth. But for women to understand that in order to get that kind of bulk, they have to eat in abundance because we can't build tissue if we don't have extra calories, especially protein calories, timed appropriately. And we have to make it an effort to go in and lift and lift and lift and not do any cardio. As soon as you do any kind of high intensity work, there's no way you're going to get bulky. And is, how frustrating is it for you when you have to constantly explain to women that they're not going to get bulky? I know you look around the gym and 
if lifting weights made you bulky, then surely all the men would be ripped. And they're clearly not if you walk into a personal gym, right? So if it's hard for men to do it, it's going to be even harder for women. But do you still feel like you're kind of butting your head against a brick wall sometimes? Is this message getting through? Are, we, are you seeing any signs that women are understanding the enormous upside of resistance training? I'm finding it's a generational thing, or maybe not generational, but an age thing. So we're seeing women that are about mid-30s and below, really embracing it. And I think it's kind of the offshoot of a few years ago where they're like, strong is the new skinny. And we started seeing in women's magazines, not like two kilo dumbbells that people were lifting, but actually a barbell. And we're seeing more and more of those images in popular media. When we start getting to late 30s on upwards, there's still the hangover of the 80s and the supermodels and we have to be super thin, we have to do the spin classes and the Pilates and the yoga. So when you start saying power-based training, people freak out. They're like, oh gosh, no, that doesn't fit in with what I think I need to be doing to be healthy. Um, so as this younger crew starts to come in or and we're normalizing what it means to be in the gym and do deadlifts and squats and compound movements, we're starting to see more and more women on the gym floor taking over the lifting platforms. And it's great, but we need to have more of that exposure to the older set because the older set really will benefit from doing strength, resistance, power-based training. What about recovery? Because you said before you've emphasized or you pushed the idea that women, when, you're not just small men, whereas a lot of the recovery protocols are kind of just kind of adapted from what the science has told us about what is optimal from a male perspective. How do recovery strategies change through a woman's life journey based on the training protocols you've mentioned? Yeah, so when we're looking at recovery itself, we know that women can pretty much hold on to three really t- really intense days, and then they really need to have a couple of days off. I started noticing this anecdotally when I was bike racing, and we'd go to a camp, and the men and women at the camp, and we, as women, would be holding on to the wheels of the men and really trying until about the third day, and then we're like, ugh. And then we'd have a day of being flat or two days of recovery. And then we were off the front and the men were like, eh. So it was this like, okay, what's going on here? So from a physiological perspective, when you start looking at it, women don't have as much creatine. We have lower creatine storage than men. So that reduces our fast energetic capabilities. We have differences in our neuromuscular firing rate. So we have really um, quick but we need more recovery for the fast aspects um, and fueling as well, where women won't tap into their liver and muscle glycogen as much as they do their fatty acids and their blood glucose. So we have to be very cognizant that two to three days of really hitting it hard, and then you definitely need to recover for one or two days. If you want to keep going, then you want to go two days on, one day moderate, two days on, one day moderate. For men, it doesn't matter. You can see them go hard for a week and then uh, they crash, they need a day, and then they're good to go again. We look at acute recovery modalities. I, I'm loving the conversation about how cold water immersion doesn't do anything. It's really bad for you, especially if you want adaptation, because it's based on male data. When we look at female data, because women vasodilate post-exercise, so all their blood goes to their periphery, having cooling mechanisms sends it back centrally so then they can improve their recovery. But for men, their blood goes centrally, and so cooling won't help. We see a negative effect of cooling because their blood is already back centrally. And if you have cold blood coming back centrally, then it really dampens adaptation. But for women, vasodilation, some cooling, shutting it back into central, 
then we can flush our muscles and everything out after we get out of the cold. So there are different strategies that we have to be aware of. That's a huge fundamental difference between men and women, which I think most people, unless they follow your work, would have no idea about. And I'm guessing this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of extrapolating the data that's been done, the huge amount of sports science data uh, and nutritional data that has been done predominantly on men, white men specifically. Yeah. How much do we still have to learn when it comes to dedicating the time and the resource, the energy to looking at how women are adapting? Because that that instance you've highlighted, it's it's almost the polar opposite response that, that we, we, we expect or we see in men. It must be incredibly exciting, but also incredibly frustrating that there's a huge amount of data still there to be discovered. Yeah, and I mean, this is where I get kind of frustrated with sports science as well, because now there's this big call, not enough research. We don't have anything for women. We need to do more research where I'm like, hold on. Yes, of course, in sports science, we see these these systematic reviews that are saying that we need more evidence. There's nothing for women. But if we look outside of sports science and to more biomedical stuff, we see molecular aspects that we can incorporate and extrapolate really good information around women. For example, um, like the immune system. So if we look at menstrual cycle effects of the immune system, we see that after ovulation, there's more a pro-inflammatory response. And if we're looking at adaptation, we don't want to put really heavy training loads and reduce recovery after ovulation because there's a systemic inflammatory response that can dampen adaptation. So from a training aspect, we want to look at things that aren't going to invoke systemic inflammation because we already are have that inflammatory response. We see this in um, diabetic research, which changes up across the menstrual cycle with the way that we can access carbohydrate, how our bodies respond to it, how our bodies respond to um, intense stress. So there's lots of, of really good, robust information that we can extrapolate from outside of the sports science realm. So I get to a point where I'm like, okay, we look at other areas in biomedical science and they've incorporated women recently and they're really getting really good data so sports science come on stop complaining that there's not enough research for women let's do it and let's pull on some of the research that's already out there so we're not starting from scratch so it is frustrating but it's also good to know that we don't have to start from the very very beginning and basics if we look outside of sports science is there a hope that the rapid rise of personalized medicine, personalized training recommendations, personalized nutrition, the whole personalized medical world that is hurtling towards us, could this help do you feel to, to leapfrog some of the gaps we have in information? Can we potentially bypass the decades of studies of, on women that's already been done on men by moving more to a personalized approach where everyone can get recommendations based on their DNA, their gut microbiome, all the other information that we're almost at the, the precipice of unlocking? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I mean, it's like things of, you know, there's a big debate about estrogen and progesterone and how they affect the body. We have to look specifically at like estrogen, progesterone receptors. How is the body actually responding to the stuff that's being produced? As we might see someone who is able to build muscle really, really well because they have a higher dose of estrogen, or we might see someone who doesn't build muscle very well and they have the same relative levels of estrogen. It's just that their body doesn't respond to it. So if we do a personalized medicine approach, then we can actually dig in and get really good information, especially sports specificity. So we look at the Olympics. I mean, I love watching it because that is the exact physique and talent that you need to be successful in each of those individual sports. 
So if we can look at what's happening on that level and then be like, okay, well, you have identified as being a really good long distance runner, but let's look a little bit more at gut microbiome and maybe a little bit more at some of the blood work to see how we can dial in your fueling and your recovery needs because we know XYZ from the professional athletes. What are the key considerations with supplementation for women? Um, You've obviously written a lot about creatine and the importance of creatine for women, something that I think traditionally men have used, maybe women haven't because of potential adverse effects, you know, some nausea, water retention, bloating, other things that might make it unattractive. But what are the other key supplements women should be considering? I'm thinking as well, um, iron. Collagen is the one that everyone seems to be raving about at the moment. What's your hierarchy of, of needs when it comes to supplementation for women? So I always put creatine first, right? Because it's so essential for just general health and then also some um, like exercise performance benefits. For iron, I always talk about the fact that women often sit on the low end of normal, and so they're never actually going to get help in their position. So if they can look at um, cycling their iron intake according to their menstrual cycle. So low hormone phase, every other day, first thing in the morning when hepcidin is low, then after ovulation, because we have this immune system change and pro-inflammatory responses, we also have an uptick in hepcidin, harder to absorb iron. So we're trying to get above that low end of normal. We have to look strategically at how we supplement. But I don't want women to just blanket supplement because too much iron also looks like or has the same symptoms as being anemic. Um, I often recommend certain nootropics, so adaptogens. So I tell women who are premenopausal looking for the use of rhodiola. Rhodiola is a really good way to counter cortisol, counter high stress situations, and allow you to get into more parasympathetic um, activation for sleep. And then for women who are perimenopause to postmenopause, I talk about ashwagandha because it's a stronger kind of adaptogen that works on so many different layers of stress. So those are the two like nootropics with creatine. And then um, I often talk about DIM which is uh, kind of a, a kind of a side factor from cruciferous vegetables, but it helps with estrogen metabolism. So people are having really bad migraines or they feel like they're getting a lot of bloating around ovulation. Using DIM dampens that because it modulates estrogen. Menopause 2.0 is your new training program to optimize performance for women around the menopause. I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about the program, what you think makes it so special, the key takeaways of what people can expect from following the plan and the results they can see? So it's really, when we wrote uh, Roar, we had one chapter on menopause and got such a email deluge of women going, hey, wait, we need more information. I was like, okay. And I did my postdoc with Marcia Stefanik, who was the PI of the Women's Health Initiative. So I was very aware of all the um, aspects in and around these big databases of postmenopausal women and hormone therapy and exercise interventions. And I thought everyone knew that, right? But I was wrong. I was in my own little bubble. So we wrote uh, the chapter of Roar and then I was like, we need to get this information out. So the whole aspect of menopause 2.0 is upskilled from the first menopause course that I put out. So it goes through the history of menopause, like what contextually it means from a socio-cultural aspect 
things like when we look at the witches that were at the stake in the Salem witch trials, most of them were women who were going through perimenopause because of the mood, the anxiety, the hot flashes, the irritability. They were just assumed to be witches. And so there's a huge history to understand how we got to be where we are with the tabooness around menopause. And then going through the different discussions of if you want to be more natural about controlling vasomotor symptoms and maybe you're not really having significant amount of symptomology, here are some things that we can do. But if you're having symptoms that are interfering with your daily life and you're like, I can't keep doing this, then there's options for menopause hormone therapy. Describing that, the history of that, what kinds of things to ask your physician. Then we get into what specifically we need to do from a training and nutrition standpoint, what kind of changes we need to make. If you're an endurance athlete, you're a power athlete, you're a general fitness person, or you're someone who now needs some structure. So we go through all of that. We talk about the gut microbiome and its influence, um, different food options, different supplements, and then bring it down to case studies and a schematic of, of how you can work things out for yourself. I, when I'm researching a conversation with you, I found it quite astonishing how little in good information and research there was around this subject. Um, and I think, as you said, it's something that you almost took for granted being in your bubble that people knew this stuff. I mean, there's obviously two issues, women, women themselves not having the access to the resource and the information, but then secondly, their, their main male partner in their life having, if the woman has a very little idea, the man probably has zero idea, right? How can a woman begin to implement some of the key strategies that are going to help her mood, her body, everything, a part of her life? And then secondly, how much did, should the men be playing a role in, in supporting here rather than just kind of shrugging their shoulders and saying, she, you know, my partner's having an off day, which seems to be almost that common, you know, comedy reaction. I know it is. I had this conversation yesterday actually with a guy who does a lot of consulting with companies and he's saying like in the C-suite, the male executives are like, we need to get her off the team because she's having all these like anxiety, depression, these kinds of things. He's like, that's not the right answer. So we have to have men involved in the conversations. They too are aware of what's going on because men age in a linear fashion. So we'll see, you know, typical progression of aging, maybe some drop in testosterone when they get to their late fifties, early sixties. But for women, perimenopause is a definitive point in the sand where all of a sudden they're aging. So if we think about puberty and all the changes the bodies go through at puberty, where the boys lean up, they get stronger, they get taller, more aggressive. The girls' hips widen, their shoulder girdle widens, center of gravity changes, they put on body fat, and then they get the menstrual cycle. We're at the other end of the spectrum now, where these hormones are starting to drop, so every system of the body is affected. So we're seeing things that typically a GP who might be unaware of what menopause is woman comes in and goes, I'm anxious, I'm tired, I can't sleep well, um, <clears throat> I my mood changes at the drop of a hat. And most of the time, the GP will be like, oh, it's because you're in your mid-40s, you're trying to raise a kid, you have a career, you have older parents, you're just too busy and too stressed. So we need to look at ways to decrease your stress. And this is not the right answer. We need to be like, okay, these are symptomology of menopause. So the first thing that we can offer really is a venaflexine, which is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, but it's massively effective at stopping vasomotor symptoms and helping people get good sleep. 
Because if we can start to get good sleep, then we start to get a little bit better handle on what's going on. And then we can identify, hey, this isn't normal for me. So when we start talking about menopause, we need to have workplace involvement. We need to have male um, partners and colleagues and you know even neighbors <laughs> involved in the conversation too to reduce the tabooness around menopause. Um, how does so many? Sorry, I was just. How does that? How does that conversation start? Because this isn't a new thing, and it's 2023. Well, when we're speaking, we've. We've still not seen any, I've certainly, maybe it's my own naivety, but I've not seen any significant shift in the conversation around this. The reason I wanted to speak to you was I couldn't find any good information around this. Why are we not seeing any change? What's going to what's gonna stimulate? What's going to change it? Yeah. I know. This was a sticking point yesterday when I was talking with um, Steve because he doesn't feel comfortable broaching it, right? Like how as a male can you broach this subject and be like, I think you're a menopause, Right. It's really hard. It's a very, very much a taboo. And so it's like putting things into support saying, okay, well, in a workplace, instead of um, specifically saying menopause leave, we have more medical leave or more flexible time, putting more mental health um, contributors and, and support in play. So if a woman is having significant issues and thinks, oh, well, maybe it's a mental health thing, get help there. And then they can be identified as, oh, this is perimenopause. Um, but just having kind of that awareness, the same as we are trying to break the taboo with menstrual cycle and having coaches and people talk about menstrual cycle, it's taken years to get there. Now we're seeing menopause conversations more and more in popular media. So we're starting to sort of see that, that tipping point, how we get that conversation not to be taboo. I still don't know. I'm still trying to figure that out because there's so much sociocultural aspects around it that we have to unpack to make it okay to talk about. So we look at like the Japanese culture, there's no word for hot flesh. There's no real word for menopause because in their culture, as you get older, you're revered. So there isn't the stress of it. It's like, oh yeah, okay, now I'm an elder and I can exert my wisdom to everyone else. But in Western a woman talks about menopause, she's automatically pigeonholed as being old. So career opportunities dry up. You see it in like uh, movie stars and actresses. Like as soon as they're thought to be old or menopausal, they don't get roles after age 40, right? So it's good to see people like Naomi Watts and Oprah and Michelle Obama talking about it because it's starting to get that ball rolling. When it comes down to the general woman, who thinks that she's going absolutely crazy when she's in her mid thirties, early forties, it's not normal. So she should be thinking, Oh, I'm going crazy. Maybe I should be asking someone help here. And that's the starting point. We got to get the women to understand what's going on and need to get the GPs to understand what's going on. So then we can really kick that ball and make it roll fast. It feels like the rise of, of social media podcasts. There's more information available than ever before. And specifically on, on the menopause and the menstrual cycle for women, that information is there. If you're interested in it, it's probably easier to find than ever. The quality probably is the, the jury's out on social media and how great the quality is. It feels as though the major block now is educating men. And how does that start? Because if you're a man, unless your partner is going through it or you're very confused by what's happening in, in, in your home life, you might go and try and find some information, but as I've said, it's quite hard to find good information. Is this going to be the real, what's going to really nudge the needle is when we can find a way of educating men. For, for instance, a man going to the doctor for an issue, the GP hands him information on the menopause, getting it into his hands that way. I mean, 
I'm desperately trying to think of some other solutions here, Dr. Singh. Yeah. What, you, would you agree that that is almost the, the, the bigger issue is the information is there for women now. How the hell do we begin to teach men about this? Yeah, and part of it is workplace and corporations. We're seeing quite a There was a good conversation um, that occurred in the New York Times yesterday, and I'm happy to flick you the article. And in the UK, there's been a lot of conversation around menopause, menopause leave, menopause support in the workplace. So there's a couple of really good consultant companies that are going to come into corporations and start to educate. It just now started to trickle over to a few corporations in the States. So we're seeing it from the top end of corporations are now understanding they can't afford to lose their top executives who are women. How are we going to support it? And part of that is actually educating the male executives. So if we can get that part going, then they're going to come home and talk about it. And then that might, you know, snowball forward. But then from a grassroots level, yes, how are we going to educate people who aren't involved in the corporate world, right? How are we going to get this as a general conversation? Maybe going to the GP and getting information is something. Or maybe like in the States, you start to watch the 6 p.m. news and you're bombarded with all these Viagra ads. Maybe instead of Viagra ads, we have education about menopause. <laughs> I'm not sure. It, it almost did that division. I certainly remember being a, a, at school when we had sex ed and the boys were taken off and told boy things and the girls were taken off and, and told girl things. And it kind of looking back now as someone of my age, it seems what an opportunity to teach boys and girls about each other rather than right. them. And you almost have that divide at such an early age that then you're on that path where you don't really ask or you don't really inquire about it. And it seems like I'm not saying this is my solution, but have that conversation when kids are completely open to any conversation and, and keen to learn as much as possible. Yeah, there was a case study that I read and it was a small um, private school outside of London where they wanted to get the conversation about menstrual cycle and the difficulties of menstrual cycle across to the male students. So they had a small cohort of girls and they had girls whose really good friends were guys and they brought them into the room and the girls felt open talking to their best mates about what it meant to have their period when they went to school. They were worried about leaking. They were worried about sport. They were worried about, um, you know, a tampon dropping out of their bag and someone making fun of them. And the guys had no idea that this was the stress that their friends were under. Because when they took the step back, instead of just being a girl and girl things, and they're like, wait, this is my good friend who is experiencing this kind of stuff all the time, or at least this high stress once a month. Then they started opening up and it's like defending and talking about menstrual cycle and spreading it around the school. Like, these are the things that we have to talk about and support our female friends and not make fun of them. And I was like, that is such a great thing that needs to be rolled out everywhere because it's just taking that personalization to understand it's not just a girl, it's a good friend or it's a sister. And that's that connection that then normalizes things. I was yeah, at a conference and I was explaining menstrual uh, cycle on that kind of seven tracking of and things like wearables that don't take so female physiology into account. So, you know, that's something else we have to be worried about as a coach. And I took a pause and I was looking out in the audience and I saw a lot of men had turned off. And so I was like, I'm not saying this is a feminist. I'm saying it from perspective. Because we look at how biomedical science, sports science and everything originated, 
why it originated from a patriarchal indoctrination because the men who started westernized medicine, who started the modern aspects of research, at their time, they're like, women aren't that smart, they have smaller brains, they're delicate flowers, they shouldn't be involved. So that's how all these protocols developed. We know this from a historical perspective. And because we know this from a historical perspective, we can pause it and move forward. So now we see that we are moving forward, but it is going to take a massive snowball effect to try to break down that male lens and that patriarchal standpoint because those things are so indoctrinated in everything we do So it's really difficult to unpack from that cultural aspect to then be able to have this nation momentum to move forward. Don't be embarrassed that you didn't know anything because it's not the offsuit of you not seeking it out or not being able to. It's just the offsuit that shoot of what's happened from a historical and a cultural perspective. The slightly older generation may be women in their 30s and 40s. Could you outline some of the key advantage and benefits of, of that demographic weightlifting, especially around perimenopause? I'm thinking increased muscle mass, you know, greater bone density. What are the other real upsides for women who might be watching this who have never lifted a weight but are at that age thinking, okay, I should really be doing this? Yeah, so it, it it's beyond just the, you know, getting lean mass and maintaining it and trying to change body composition to a positive scope for perimenopause. When we look at it from like longevity and a brain factor, we know that if you're doing aerobic exercise, you can increase BDNF and get better brain tissue volume. But when we're looking at resistance training, it's more the neuro pathways. So if we're looking at attenuating Parkinson's, attenuating Alzheimer's, dementia, we need the resistance training because it's creating new neural pathways. If you're looking at how your central nervous system has to respond to the load, how it has to learn the pathway for muscle recruitment, it's all in the benefit of better neural pathway. And then we get better proprioception, better space and time. And so when you get older, if you happen to step off a curb wrong, your risk, your falls risk has decreased significantly. And if you do fall, you have the strength from lifting as well as the bone density not to break a hip. So it's more, I tell women who are older, it's not about this training block right here, or you know, in six weeks, you're going to be able to deadlift X amount of kilos. It's about what you want to do when you're 80. You want to be independent. You want to be walking. You don't want joint replacement. You don't want to be living in a frailty. So resistance training is a bedrock there. You've put plyometric training front and center of your menopausal women training program, which I find fascinating, I guess, the extension of the power training. Why Why is plyometric training so important and, and so crucial in your mind? And on the flip side, again, with the resistance training, is it an even greater stretch trying to get women to embrace plyometric training? Because that seems like an even further more advanced step from, from kind of the traditional cardio machines that a lot of them will be more familiar with. Yeah, so when we look at plyometrics, again, it's the eye of maintaining muscle integrity because the first thing that goes beyond strength is also power. So we're seeing a decrease in muscle quality. We're seeing a decrease in the absolute amount of muscle fibers. So we look at plyometric, it's all about that explosive rebound, really fast um, accessibility of muscle fiber. So it's the neural connections, central nervous system, neural connections, but it's also creating a stress where the body's like, I need to hold on to this tissue and I need to make sure that's very viable. So when we talk about muscular strength and power, plyometrics is great for that. But then the other thing is with plyometrics, we get a really acute metabolic change. 
So it's such a strong stress to the body that it instigates better uh, blood glucose control and better blood glucose uptake without the reliance so much on insulin. Because as women get older, especially late perimenopause, early postmenopause, there's more insulin resistance. So this is why it's really critical. And I'll tell people, look, you don't have to be doing a box jump up 30 inches, right? We can do low, we can do low depth box jumps. We can do counter movement jumps. You can do battle ropes if you don't want to jump. It's explaining about the power base aspect of plyometrics because it's not about the high jumps that people think about with plyometrics. And there's massive pushback because one of the first things I get is I can't jump. My knees and hips won't let me. It's like, okay, well, we need to strengthen everything around the joints because we know there's greater inflammation and an increase in osteoarthritis around perimenopause. But if we start low and work our way up, just the same with heavy lifting, you're going to be able to do the plyometrics within the confines of your own movement category. Is it a more difficult sell to get women to to buy into this because maybe the benefits aren't immediate? If you have never lifted weights or never deadlifted, for instance, you can probably see with the right coaching a very quick improvement in in the weight you're lifting, which can be self re, you know reinforcing and convince people that it's the right track. With plyometric training, is that a different battle altogether? Because you've probably got to take a few steps backward backwards in in order to improve joint integrity or all the other things you mentioned before you can progress. Is this another obstacle? It can be, yeah. But um, I always put it in the, I guess, the training terminology of undulating periodization, knowing that there's going to be a fallback and then a step forward. So the fallback usually occurs in more of a deload. So it is incorporated and we're like, okay, here's the training step. You start at the bottom when we work our way up and then we take a step back. And this is normal adaptation. And when people understand that, they're like, oh, okay, I can see now this is where I'm going to fall back. I'm not going to get frustrated. But it's all part of the long game of where I want to be in three months, six months, 12 months, et cetera, down the track. And it's always a stepwise progression. And when someone understands that, then they're like, oh, I get it. Yeah, I can take that step back. In terms of training hierarchy, women are busy, right? Especially if they're aged, they've got young children in their 30s and their 40s. How should somebody prioritize their training? Because they probably want to incorporate some strength training, some plyometrics, some hits, some um you know, slow, steady state intensity work. What What is the, you know, the big rocks here in terms of where they should be focusing their priority if they do only have limited training time? Yeah, so um, this is, it depends really on where they are in their life journey. If we're looking at early 30s, um, early to mid 30s, and they're they're not having any kind of uh, overt symptomology of being in perimenopause, so they're still responding real, well to training and that kind of stuff. Um, of course, resistance training is the bedrock of it, but it can be mixed up. So it can be a box fit type class where you're having some lifting and some metabolic conditioning all within the 45 minutes. Um, or you can look at it as having two weeks of intensity and resistance training, so sharp stuff, and then one week of we're going to do more steady state, zone one, zone two, recovery, mobility stuff. And you can mix it up a bit. When we start getting into perimenopause specifically, this is where we really need to have that focus on resistance training complemented with sprint interval training. So a session could be in and out of the gym or your garage in 35 to 40 minutes. So this is where you're looking at doing a couple of compound movements and we're following the three to five rep scheme. 
And then you finish it up with maybe five 30-second blasts as hard as you can with a minute recovery. So you're getting that little bit of metabolic um, high-intensity work at the end of a heavy lift. So you're really kind of confusing central nervous system from recruiting heavy power to all of a sudden the explosiveness. So from a metabolic and a central nervous system, they complement each other. So it can be short and sharp three times a week. And so that fits in a lot with time management. And then other people are like, well, I don't have 30 to 5 to 40 minutes. What do I do? It's like, okay, well, take 20-minute block here and focus just on the heavy lifting. And, I mean, I, I say that as I'm sitting here in my jeans and T-shirt because I did that before dinner. My daughter is playing soccer. I had 20 minutes. I missed getting to the gym. So I did my heavy bench and push press in the garage in my normal clothes. I'm like, oh, 20 minutes. So there's ways of fitting it in, right? And then you can do your 30-second blasts that might take 15 minutes or less later on in the day. You've spoken and written extensively about the concept of training within your cycle. And I'm really hoping we could dive into this a little bit more now. Firstly, how much have this this philosophy and these coaching methods around the menstrual cycle been incorporated at the elite level? It'd be great if you could give us an insight into how much that's that's now a, a key factor. But then also for the for the general female population, are women aware of some of the physiological changes that are happening at different stages of their cycle? And and specifically, what impact is that having on their training, their nutrition, their recovery, their sleep, so that they can build a better picture of when they should push, when they should hold back? Yeah. Um, so from an elite level, there are many, many professional athletes that are tracking in their cycle. And this is what we want people to understand, that we don't have enough data to make generalized recommendations from sports science, but we do have really good case reports. We have anecdotal um, work. We have case studies. And again, we have information outside of sports science that we can pull in and look at how the body responds to stress and how it adapts across the menstrual cycle. So the very first thing that we want people to do is track their menstrual cycle. And so they can understand how they respond and how they sleep across their own cycle. Because again, it comes down to estrogen surges around ovulation, but are you someone who feels super flat around ovulation or are you someone that like feels bulletproof? And so when you start to know these nuances, then you can really maximize your own training within guidelines. Because if we're looking at low hormone state, the follicular phase, this is where your immune system is really robust. You can access carbohydrate really well. You can push heavy, heavy loads and recover from it. And it has to do again with immunity and stress resilience and the ability to adapt to stress. Then after ovulation, we have this change in your immune system. We have a changeover in metabolic aspects where your body can't access carbohydrate very well. Because carbohydrates coming in and being shuttled to the endometrial lining. We're having more muscle tissue breakdown because the body's like, I need more building blocks because I'm trying to build tissue. I'm trying to build the uterine lining and make it really robust in case a baby is you know implanted <clears throat> and so we're looking from a training scope your body's fighting between training adaptations and trying to create a really good robust endometrial lining so when we start looking at what are we doing from a, a stress and immunity and ad ad adaptation point of view kind of need to think about it and how am i responding i'm not saying don't do anything hard and heavy after ovulation but just be cognizant of how your body is responding to that. And then you can really start to go, oh, well, you know what? On day 18, I always feel like I'm getting a cold and I feel pretty flat. And you won't know that it's always day 18 if you're not tracking. But then you're like, 
oh yeah, day 18, I'm going to schedule a recovery day. I'm not going to stress out too much that I can't hit intensities that I want to because I know that my body is not really that capable of doing it on that day. 